Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. That means we're all living dogs because we're joined to the living this morning. I expect that after I'm done speaking today, you're still joined to the living. I hope nobody falls asleep and goes, goes out on us today. Um, this uh, passage basically says we don't know what's going on sometimes, and you can't find it. You can't find the answers to everything. But we've been studying from a book that is giving us some pretty deep insight into things, things that people just don't often talk about around the table, uh, things that people aren't talking about casually on the streets, even at the workplace or in schools. People don't talk about life and death very often unless we're in a setting where it, it's appropriate to do so and there's no distractions and how often does that happen, right? But here we are, we come together uh, on the Lord's Day and what do we always talk about? We talk about life and death. We talk about goodness, we talk about suffering, we talk about all these things. I think it's terrific. This is what I need to know, isn't it you? I mean, I really need to know this stuff. And so, man, we've got a book we've been studying that uh, is so rich and uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to try to conclude it today like Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Here are the conclusion of the whole matter, and there's like one verse. I couldn't do that. There's, there's a lot of conclusions that you can draw from the book of Job that we're studying. But have you heard the name Chris Bradley? Nod your head if you know who Chris Bradley is. I suppose there's a number of you in here that realize that he was... NBC4's chief meteorologist for a few years, maybe now you know. He uh, uh, obtained cancer uh, in recent months or maybe even years. I'm not sure when exactly he came down with this blood-borne disease, but he actually had a donor. And for whatever reasons, the, the, uh, blood or the bone marrow transplant was not able to, to happen. Maybe he was too far along by the time. I don't know exactly how that happened. I didn't research it deeply, but there was enough um, tributes to him on over the last few weeks that I, I, I gathered what was going on. But I, I'll tell you what I grabbed a notepad and pen about was the donor, uh, Chris's donor. And he said this, when, when asked, how'd you deal with it? How'd the two of you deal with it? He was a very good friend of his. And he said this, he said, faith is important to us. It's important for us to understand that God has a plan for each of us, that there is something greater that he wants to do through us. Well, now when you're getting the weather, your meteorologists don't get to talk about all this stuff, right? And, and you wouldn't want them to. <laughs> you just want to give me the weather. I want to know what's going to be when I go outside, right? But how interesting the depth uh, that was here. I don't know what religious affiliation Chris Bradley was. I don't know. But I do know this, that he had a pretty good perspective on life and on death and his donor as well. And they agreed in their understanding of not just what was happening. I imagine that question is still out there for them. Why? I wonder why this happened. But this they knew that there's something that the Lord can do with this. And I commend them for that. I commend them for that. 
So we've been studying Job, and in chapter 1 we saw that he lost everything, and him and his wife lost their ten children, and, and he fell before the Lord and worshipped. He worshipped. He said, I came into the world naked, and I'm going to leave naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in chapter 2, he loses his health. He's inflicted with boils from his head to his feet. And if you were here last week, you probably remember some of those pictures that I briefly showed. Just what we're talking about here so we can get an idea. I can't illustrate some of the other losses, but we can see what boils look like on people's skin. And it's horrific. And if, if that wasn't enough to lose everything, but to deal now with your physical health diminishing to that degree to where he was just miserable. And if you want to know how miserable, he tells you in the book the details of what it was like to have these boils. And he couldn't sleep. He couldn't wait to go to bed in hopes that there would be rest. And then he laid awake all night and couldn't wait till morning so he could get up and try to do something to comfort himself. He's, he's miserable. His three friends come from afar. And these are men with names. Uh, not just given names, but they're notable men. And they're friends of Job's, and they've probably got to know each other over the years through business or uh, maybe personal reasons. Uh, they may have been related in some way. We know that all these people after the flood moved to the east. We can read about in the migration in Genesis of Shem's, the Semitic peoples, going toward the east and being from across the river over north of the Euphrates. And that's where the name Hebrews comes from. Those who are from across the river, sons of Eber, the Hebrews. And so um, Pharaoh was the one that began to call them that. And we come to, to know them as such um, more fondly uh, through Scripture. But Job spends chapters 3 through 31 demanding answers from God. So to the first loss, he worships God, and after the second loss, his wife says, curse God and die, and he says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks, shall we not accept good from the hand of God as well as adversity? But then in chapter 3, you realize he turns to God and says, this is harsh. I don't think I deserve this, Lord. And he goes on into depth to pour out his emotion, his pain, his grief. And each time he gives a dialogue about how he feels, about the fact that he wished he was never born, about the agony that he's in physically, about the agony that he is in emotionally, all his other friends and acquaintances have deserted him. Maybe they just didn't know what to say. Maybe they, didn't, maybe they were snobs and didn't want to associate with him, but probably they just didn't know what to do with the guy. And, and they all deserted him. And he's pouring out. And every time he finishes a dialogue, one of his friends speaks up and says, I, I, I got to speak. You're out of line. And you need to confess some sin. And so we learn that this, this, there's this theology going on that Job also seems to understand it this way, and that is, well, I thought that when someone was suffering, it was due to sin. And that's why he so ardently makes his case that this is, 
This isn't right. This isn't fitting. I've been pouring my heart into serving you, Lord. Now, here's the, here's the trap he falls into. And this young man named Elihu comes along later. And he's not mentioned at all, but he's sitting there at least after some time, after the three friends come and are mentioned. This, this younger man named Elihu is there because he recalls the things that the free, three friends are saying. And so he's in the presence. And then he gets like chapters 31 to 37, like six chapters. And as Job seems to make a transition from this doesn't seem right to what I understand to let me make a case that should justify me before you, Lord. And he falls into that trap of self-justification. So when you're reading about, his nature, about Job's character, and you're reading about the good things that he does, and you say, oh, what a nice man. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it. Meanwhile, he's, he says, I want to bring my case before you. If I had a day with the Lord in court, here's what I would say. He, he's laying it out there. He's getting frustrated. And it's going on and on. And what he starts doing is saying, I don't deserve this. And Elihu's picking up on this. And he's got a little more wisdom than the other friends, actually. And he apologizes for it for almost the first chapter. I know I'm younger and you all are older and you're wiser and you've lived longer and blah, blah, blah. But I got to speak. If you'll just allow me to speak and you're sitting there reading it going, I'll bet they're saying, just, all right, already, shut up, speak. <laughs> We're going to give you a little time. <laughs> and, he, and he goes on and he actually, he actually speaks many things that are true and right. And he picks up on this. But Job's demanding answers from God. He asks, why didn't I die at birth? Chapter 3, verse 11. What is man that you should test him every moment? Chapter 12, verses 17 and eight, or 7, 17 and 18. How long, notice, will you look upon me? What do we say when we're suffering? How long will you turn your face from me, Lord? How long will you look away? Don't you see what's going on? Job's attitude is, how long are you looking down on me to pick on me? How long were you going before you turn away from me? Interesting, his perspective on that. Have I sinned? What have I done to you? Why have you set me as your target? Chapter 7, verse 20. If I'm condemned, why then do I, why then do I labor in vain? Chapter 9, verse 29. These are serious questions that are turning into accusatory questions, aren't they? All right. If I'm condemned, why then do I labor in vain? Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Chapter 13, verse 24. So in one case, he says, why are you looking upon me as a target? In another case, he says, you can just see his emotional roller coaster he's on. And it's pitiful. It's pitiful, pitiful, but you know what? The Lord holds him accountable still for his thoughts and his words. In all this, the Lord's still holding him accountable for how he thinks about this situation. And he comes and speaks to him at the end. Well, look at that. But Job's hope wavers even a little bit. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart. I'm not heard. Chapter 17, verse 11. He's, he's really having a hard time. So Job's three friends, in the end, go ahead and flip to chapter 42. We're going to camp out at the end of Job now. 
Job's three friends are rebuked by God. Look at chapter 42, verses 7 through 9. Not Elihu, the younger man that I told you about was verse chapters 31 through 37. Not Elihu. 42.7. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. And if there was a um, parenthetical statement I'd put in there, it would be, and they went with their tails tucked between their legs. Go to Job. Not just offer sacrifices. Go to Job. I'll accept him. Ouch. But they learned. The things that they were saying were not right. And it wasn't that everything they said was wrong or sinful. It was that the conclusion for why Job was suffering was wrong. That he must have sinned really bad because his suffering is really bad. Are, did you hear that, church? Did you hear that, friends who are visiting? It was wrong for them to conclude because they're suffering this much. God is angry with them this much. That the two go hand in hand. And when things are going really good, guess what we do? Oh, God is really, really pleased with me. And we, we tend to put them on a scale together and try and balance them out. However things are going, that's what God thinks of me. Well, that changes day to day for me. I don't know about for you. Hour to hour, minute to minute, that can change with two phone calls. I can be up here and then go down there and take a week to get back up or vice versa. He's foolish. Your three friends have spoken wrongly. Now, Job has spoken rightly. Interesting. Sounds like he's saying some wrong things, but he's concluding rightly. He's concluding some things rightly that what I'm actually experiencing doesn't seem to match the way I've lived, even though he's erring with his justification of himself in the process, he's still saying, this doesn't, this, this, the way I've thought about this isn't right. This isn't the right theology. Jesus deals with this several places. Probably the most prominent, two most prominent places. John 9. Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God may be seen in him, and he healed him. Interesting. Answer to your question, neither this man sinned that he was born blind. God didn't hate him. Nor his parents. God doesn't punish the sins of the parents upon their children. Ezekiel 18. That still holds true all through. Also, when some came to Jesus on another occasion, Luke chapter 13, and said, 
Lord, did you hear about how Pilate was mingling the blood of some of the Galileans with their sacrifices to the Lord? And Jesus picked up on it right away. This is kind of sad that the, the perceiver of hearts had to see this in their hearts. But he had to correct a thought here. They were kind of like saying, she was rotten Galileans. I mean, they're so bad that God's punishing them by allowing Pilate to mingle the people who have died with their sacrifices of bulls and goats in the temple of God. They must be rotten people. And he said, do you think that these are worse sinners than all other Galileans? And then he calls on a current event. And he said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll all perish. But then he called on a current event and he said, the Tower of Siloam in Jerusalem, one of the towers in the city. The Tower of Siloam that fell and killed those 18 people. Do you think they were worse sinners than all other people? I tell you no. There's the answer to the question right there. Hmm. The tower was old and faulty. It had cracks and gravity pulled it down eventually. And there were people in the city walking back and forth and God didn't pick out and say, okay, when those 18 sinners get under there, I'm going to bring this tower down on their head. Jesus said no. But unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. How? Unexpectedly and unready. I mean, just talk about turning bad theology into current theology. Like, here's what you need to know about that. You need to know, instead of thinking about, are these people so bad that God's punishing them, thinking about your own sinfulness and getting right with God. I'm standing right here before you. Let's get right. I mean, that was the mindset of Jesus. Isn't that marvelous? How <laughs> he could just, just get people to look inside themselves. So there was some bad theology going on here, and Elihu comes along and he picks up on it. And he shares some things and he escapes condemnation and he doesn't condemn Job either. He's in a win-win. Good for him. Read, read those chapters about him just in a study all by themselves. He said, I'm not here to condemn you, Job. But some of the things that are being spoken are wrong. He says, why do you contend with the Almighty? He doesn't give an account for his words. Why are you contending with him? Job's problem is revealed in God's response, chapter 38. There's a lot of ways that I could imagine God handling this situation and dealing with this problem. I, I personally would have, if I hadn't known how this book goes, I would have never guessed he would do it this way. It's fascinating. But in chapter 38, God answers Job out of a whirlwind. That's a tornado, folks. Picture a tornado whipping up the dust in front of you. Kind of reminds you of that pillar of cloud and fire, what they must have seen. And the Lord's voice booming out of that thing. Talk about dropping you to your knees in fear. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man... I will question you, and you shall answer. Were you at the creation that you may explain origins to me, Job? 
I'm paraphrasing, in fields of study. Do you know oceanography? And what is in the depths of the spree, the depths of the sea, the springs that are in the deep? Have you been there? Do you understand meteorology and the origin of weather patterns and how the water cycle works? Do you know astrology and how the stars and planets are upheld by the word of my power and how they shine light upon the earth? Do you understand zoology? And can you care for all of these animals as he explains their ways, their marvelous ways, and the eagles and the wild beasts of the field, how they carry on, how they fly, how they breed, how they raise their young. Do you understand zoology, Job? Do you know theology? And can you correct me? Chapter 40, verse 2. Or can your own right hand save you? Chapter 40, verse 14. Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Chapter 40, verse 8. Those are three key questions that help you understand where Job went in his thought processes. God understood his suffering and was compassionate and merciful didn't consider him a sinner in need of sacrifices, but he knew where he was going with this. And so this is when he shows up and he says, will you correct me? Can your own right hand save you? And will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Those are big three questions that help you understand the entire book. Well, let me give you two examples. The Lord says, Look at these two beasts, real animals. All the animals in the book of Job are real animals, but we don't know what these things are today. I don't think we have them. And they're probably dinosaurs. Read the descriptions. And he says, behemoth is the first of the ways of God. No one can draw near him with a sword except he who made him. Leviathan, put him on a leash and take him home for your maidens. Go out and go fishing for him. Drop a line in the water and see if you can catch him. Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never forget it. And he says about that, remember the day. Who is able then to stand against me? If, if, if you cannot understand, control, and bring under into submission these beasts of the field, how are you going to understand, control, and bring me in subjection to you? I made them. I am greater than them. Everything under heaven, he said, is mine. Who has preceded me? Speaking of his eternality. God has always been. Who has preceded me that I should repay him? In other words, for bringing me into existence like my parents. Who's preceded me that I should repay? Is there anybody that I answer to? No. So Job, let me explain some things to you. And Job, 
get some insight that he had not received, and he also just gets some good old-fashioned humility that he needed. He went back from, I don't deserve it, to just let me shut my mouth. And God's response really is, you don't have to deserve it. This isn't about what you deserve. That's what we tend to think. That's what Job's friends were thinking. That's what Job was thinking. You don't have to deserve it. But there's some things you need to know about it. And Job, I rule the universe, and I see many things that you can't see, and I do many things that you don't understand. As ruler of the universe, trust me, is what he's saying to him. Trust me. Here's some conclusions from Job. Ah. Let me go over this first with you. Chapter 42, verses 10 through 17, let's just briefly see that the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. All his acquaintances and his siblings, this is the first insight we get into that, he had brothers and sisters, they all come around, they comfort him and console him. Now pay attention to this, for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. So remember in chapter 2, the Lord said to Satan, you incited me against him. Like, who's doing all this? Oh, no, no, Satan did it. No, the Lord did it. Satan did it. Lord. The answer is yes. It was in the, within the Lord's power to allow this to happen and for him to go through this. And he granted some of that power to Satan to inflict harm on Job. The Lord says that his acquaintances and siblings comforted him for all of the things the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. So we're not going to excuse that. That is a fact. And each one gave him a gift. And he had seven sons and three daughters. That kind of dates the book a little bit too. He's living in an age where they're older, living longer, 20 kids. And he lives to see four generations. He's back probably Abraham, pre-Abraham. And Job died old and full of years. But Job said, in the beginning of that chapter, I didn't read it, but he said, My ear has heard of you. I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear. I've heard a lot of things about you, Lord. Things have been passed down to me orally from my father's. A lot of truths, but now my eye sees you. I want to propose to you just as a side note, this is the relationship that you should pursue with God. Is not just say, I know the Bible. I know a lot of stuff about God. But to say, my eye sees God. I understand. I have perception about who God is, about this life, about suffering. My eye sees him, and sometimes it takes suffering to see him. That's his goal in it. You want to know the difference between what Satan's up to and God's up to? Read James chapter 1. Satan tempts you to destroy you. God tests you to refine you so that your eye can see him. That's the difference. It's in motivation. The same event happens in them all, we read. It does. That's why Job's looking around going, what? The evil prosper. 
Sometimes it's only through suffering. And I know people personally, I have family members personally that I believe turn to the Lord because of suffering. You probably know some too. Here's some conclusions from Job. The end of a thing is better than its beginning, and there's an end intended by the Lord. I use Solomon's words out of Ecclesiastes, combined with James's thought in the New Testament. The end is better than the beginning. Okay? Whether your end comes through suffering while you're still alive, or you suffer through death, Revelation 2.10, be faithful up to and through the point of death and you realize it after you die when you're with the Lord. Either way, the end is better than the beginning. There's sometimes a greater purpose for suffering that we can imagine, than we can imagine. Uh, about this, I've mentioned before several times, where Job says, I wish that these things were penned in a book written in stone, so that all could see. Well, guess what? penned in a book, written in stone, the word of God abides forever. As long as the earth remains, we have these words here to read. Job's suffering would become the universal case study for all men who live on the earth after him. And in this story, we not only learn right or wrong thinking, we learn more about the nature and character of God. You don't have to deserve stuff. God's about refining you. And your character. We all experience one more. We all experience both goodness and suffering and are equally valued and loved by God. He created you with tremendous priceless value to himself. And he loves the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. He doesn't single people out to hate. There's no individual predestination. He already chose who he's going to save and who he's going to condemn. None of that business. God loved the world and calls us to respond to him. And James wanted us to know that this whole ordeal was full of God's compassion and mercy. And if I were to say there's one conclusion of the matter, and I've got more here, there's one that overrides all of them, is that the Lord is compassionate and merciful through all of these things, and the end is better in the beginning. Suffering may be the result of your sin. Like Judas, he suffered emotionally, spiritually, and physically at the end because of his sin. Sometimes it's someone else's sin. Jesus Christ went to the cross for our sins, not his own. Or no one's sin. Do you think these people were worse sinners than everyone else? The tower fell on them? It wasn't because of somebody's sin. The tower fell on Gravity pulled it down. However, here's what you need to know, Jesus said. We don't know whose hand the suffering comes from. It might be that God has been incited against you. It might be that God says, you're getting a little spoiled. I think I need to discipline you. And no, no suffering uh, feels good at the time, the Hebrew letter says. But it's painful, but afterwards yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness. God can do that himself. He can do, he can do that. He has the prerogative to do that. 
Maybe Satan still incites him against us. I know he tempts us to destroy us, and that can cause us grief. It might be by our own misdeeds. I call it stupid tax when I do something stupid and I pay for it. Or no one's. But God always knows your lot. He'll walk with you through it and bless you in the end. And, and Solomon said, if you lean on his understanding and not your own, you'll have a better understanding. God is sovereign and has complete control and mastery over processes and outcomes. We don't like the way some things go in the world. We watch NBC4. And Chris Bradley used to tell us about some of the disastrous weather patterns. And then other reporters would come on and tell us about some bad stuff going on in the world. And we tend to think, oh, I wonder what God's doing up there. He's in control of his universe. People who are out of control mess things up. God doesn't leave. He doesn't hate you. He's still right there. And we need to trust him that the end is better than the beginning. Satan doesn't know God. Why are you going to run with him? He doesn't know what love is. I don't believe from anything I read. He understands agape love. He doesn't know what grace is or he'd embrace it for himself because hell has been reserved for him and his followers, those angels that have left their first place at God's side to serve his creation. He doesn't know you as well as he thinks he is. And I'm not downplaying his craftiness, his influence, and his power. I'm saying that he has misunderstandings about God and you. He doesn't think that you'll give or lose anything and still worship God. He doesn't think that you'll give anything to save your own self. He doesn't think much of you. That kind of upsets me. I kind of have an attitude about that. But Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever condition I'm in. I need advancement back there, Mike. All right, thank you, brother. All the hatred and injustices of the world will be settled in the end. Did a word study on this and just all the, I chased a rabbit here for you. There will be a shaking of the earth. I don't know if it's literal. God doesn't need to literally shake the earth to do this. But the language is used in Job, in Hebrews, in Revelation, and other places that there'll be a shaking to get all the evil out of it. But the Hebrew letter is really cool in that it says, we're receiving the kingdom that can't be shaken. So when he shakes the church, the righteous don't fall out of it into condemnation. That's the kingdom you need to be a part of right there. Job tried to justify himself in two ways. He tried exalting himself and he tried condemning God. Maybe God isn't what he's all, all cracked up to be. But in the end, he would be justified by grace through faith. Isn't that interesting? He maintained his faith in God. So you could say all these things he said about him, he was addressing God. He believed in God. He thought there must be some answer to this. And he retained God in his knowledge. And he was justified by the grace of God who forgave him for his foolish speaking and his 
Would you condemn me to justify yourself, Job? We know that because at the end, he said Job has spoken rightly. Job doesn't require sacrifices. You men require sacrifices for your misunderstanding and your words against Job. He wasn't saved by his works. God pointed that out, lest he should boast. Can your own hand save you, Job? And we'll be saved in the same manner as he. Job was waiting on the blood of Jesus Christ to come and thoroughly atone for his sins. And we are waiting on Jesus Christ who shed his blood to atone our sins to come back and receive us to himself. And I think I have maybe one more here. There will be a last man standing scenario at the end of time. Job said it prophetically. I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at last on earth. He'll be the last one standing here. His attitude was, I just want to be standing there with him when it happens. Don't you? I want to be standing there before him. I don't want to be cast into outer darkness. I want to be standing there ready to be translated. Fly away. I've been singing about it for years. I'm ready. Let's go. I want to be standing there with him when he says, come forth. And by the word of his power that's upholding us this very day, by which this world is turning, by which you're experiencing all the things of this life, that in the end, you will be standing there. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Let's not leave him or forsake him, no matter what. Can I hear an amen to that? All right. Those are some things from Job I hope you enjoy. Now, at the beginning of the year, we're going to start talking about the book of Revelation, which is not unrelated whatsoever. But it's rolling this thought pattern into how the church is going to have to handle some things and what to expect in the end. And it's a beautiful book. There's things we can understand from the Revelation. But Kevin's got a song picked out for us. And if you need to become a Christian and stand with him at last on earth, we'll receive your confession and baptize you into Christ today. Let's stand.